Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season two, episode number seven. And I'm really excited today to have a world-leading expert in hypertrophy and bodybuilding research, as well as application. Uh, Dr. Eric Helms, PhD, is on the show today. In this episode, Eric is going to dive into how protein requirement shifts during a building phase in caloric sufficiency versus leading out phases in a caloric deficit. He'll also talk targets for effective weekly weight loss, probably lower than you think the importance of carbohydrates for bodybuilders and suggested intake ranges along with applications for low-carb eating. Eric's also going to dive into how contest prep impacts testosterone levels. Spoiler alert, not very good. How fat intake impacts T-levels and how long it takes to restore these levels post-competition. He'll also share some evidence-based supplements to potentially add to your repertoire and what supplements seem to be all sizzle and not so much steak. Finally, he'll share the importance of using your eyes and ears to really monitor progress and why an individualized nutrition approach is so key to success. Fantastic insights here from Eric, as well as practical applications from a guy who's done it himself, as well as trains the best of the best. Uh, If you're interested more on hypertrophy and supplementation for training, then please, you can circle back to season one, episode number 25 with Dr. Brad Schoenfeld and episode number 34 with Dr. Joe Antonio. And of course, you can check out my links and layups at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, as well as the links to Dr. Helm's webpage and research. Okay, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is highly bioavailable and has been shown in research to enhance stamina by stabilizing blood glucose levels during exercise, as well as strengthening immunity by buffering exercise-induced reductions in key immune markers. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, let's get things rolling. Season 2, episode number 7 on nutrition for bodybuilding with Dr. Eric Helms. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Eric Helms, PhD, an active researcher in the areas of maximum strength development, fat loss, hypertrophy, and competitive physique and strength sport. He is the co-founder and regular contributor to the monthly applications and strength sport research review and is the author of the Muscle and Strength Nutrition and Training Pyramids books. Eric also coaches a handful of drug-free strength and physique athletes through a 3D muscle journey, which he co-founded in 2009. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time today. Absolutely a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, so many great areas to cover here today talking uh, bodybuilding, training for physique, but uh, you know, before we jump in here, Eric, maybe if we can give listeners a little more on your background and how you got into the research side of things. For sure. Yeah, you know, I started out like many people do in the iron game, just fell in love with lifting. 
um, and that was around 2005. I was in my early 20s um, and really just got bit by the bug, as they say. Um, and I got involved with both competitive powerlifting in 2006, and then I did uh, my first natural bodybuilding shows in 2007. Um, became a personal trainer. I, I, I tend to get pretty obsessed with anything I do, so both the science, the practice, and the, the community of the sport um, all really intrigued me. So I, uh, I wanted to study it. I got my first personal training certification in uh, 2005, and then it just kind of kept going from there. Uh, and every step of the way, I thought, you know, maybe I can take this a little bit further. And that eventually culminated in uh, coming out to New Zealand to do my Ph.D., uh, and also a master's. Uh, the master's focus was in um, protein and macronutrient requirements for dieting strength athletes. Uh, so a lot of overlap with physique athletes as well there. And then for the PhD that I just finished, I was looking at uh, strategies for auto-regulating training and powerlifters. Um, and all the way I've been working with, with strength and physique athletes and, and doing my own thing as well as an athlete and uh, proving to be just slightly above average. So it's been good. That's awesome and phenomenal to have both sides of the coin there with a real practical base and, of course, uh, all your work in terms of the research. So, you know, maybe the best place to kick things off here is everyone's favorite topic, which is protein. Um, mm. So with all the lifting, cardio, restricting calories, you know, how does all this impact the protein requirements for, say, a bodybuilder or someone who's more physique-focused in terms of the training? That's a great question. Yeah, you know, and, and the research is evolving in this area, but I originally started with the hypothesis that, you know, we have all these independent factors which drive uh, a higher protein need, you know, activity being one of them. And then while resistance training doesn't actually drive a higher protein need, it's more so that if you are resistance training, you can make better gains on a higher protein diet relative to, say, you know, the RDA or kind of habitual intake. Uh, and then as you get leaner, uh, there's shifts in, in, in energy metabolism. So uh, a recent study that came out out of uh, Stu Phillips' lab is they found that uh, in overweight individuals, uh, if they are uh, going into a diet, protein synthesis is suppressed. Uh, but other data shows that if you are a non-overweight individual, not only that, but also protein degradation increases. So there's a decent theoretical argument for trying to increase your protein while dieting. Uh, it's unknown if it's truly, we don't, we don't have the best quality evidence to determine that, yes, indeed, a higher protein intake will um, beyond what would you, you would need when you're not dieting is going to guard against uh, muscle mass losses. But at the very least, it, it's probably helpful for satiety and maybe enhancing energy expenditure to some degree because of um, some of the effects of protein and how it is difficult to convert into energy. So it's, it's certainly something that should be um, high for, for someone who's lifting weights and is dieting. Um, the question is how high. And, and right now, I think our best evidence would be somewhere between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kg uh, when, when you're in a state of energy balance. So that's about 0.7 to 1 gram per pound. Uh, and then when you are in a state of uh, energy deficit, maybe kicking that up a little bit, about like 0.2 grams per kg, somewhere in the range of uh, just below a gram per pound up to maybe like 1.3, 1.4 grams per pound at most. Um, so that, that's kind of where we're at right now with our best guess. There's not a ton of research where we're um, dieting people over long-term periods uh, while they're, they're getting very lean. So a lot of this is kind of extrapolating from existing data and you know experience of working with lifters. But that's probably a, a non-harmful level for sure and uh, likely won't impact your carbohydrate or fat intake. 
That's a great uh, point to be able to differentiate between when people are in a you know, caloric excess or a sufficient amount of calories versus especially in something like bodybuilding, we're getting into that caloric deficit and the protein requirements then, you know, potentially being a lot higher. Um, and if we, if we stay on the caloric deficit side of things here, you know, obviously classically this idea of 500 kcals per day over the course of a week, you know, leads to this gain or loss, in this case, a loss of, of, of body fat. Can you talk about that as a, a general um, way to think of things and, and how individuals may differ in their, in their responses? Yeah, that, that's that's kind of in the, the <clears throat> classic rule. You know, if you, you generate an energy deficit of 3,500 calories, which is roughly uh, the amount of calories that should be in a pound of adipose tissue, uh, knowing that that fat tissue isn't completely fat, there's some water in there, and then multiplying the number of grams by nine, you get roughly 3,500. And it's, it's a decent proxy. Um, the issue, though, and if you look at some of the research by Kevin Hall, is that um, you can't just look at it as math. You know, if you simply create an energy deficit of 500 um, and then expect yourself to lose a pound continuously, uh, that, that just doesn't happen in, in the real world. And there's a number of reasons for that. Is one, uh, people aren't great at estimating their caloric intake. Food labels aren't incredibly accurate. They also tend to overestimate their energy expenditure. Um, and on the other side of it, the energy expenditure actually changes in response to energy intake. So there's immediate drops in the thermic effect of food. You know, you're eating less food, so it takes less total energy to process it. It's a small amount, but it's still there. And then more significantly, things like non-exercise activity thermogenesis, just how much you move on a day-to-day basis goes down. And also, as you lose weight, you're moving less mass, so you're going to burn less calories moving. And at a micro level, things like muscular efficiency increase. So you're burning you require less ATP for the same level of movement to some small degree, which adds up over time. And kind of the, uh, the overarching name for all that at the same time is what's called adaptive thermogenesis. And you can have huge responses in, in some individuals and very small responses in others. So this could be on average probably, you know, after you've lost, say, 10 pounds, you're burning about 15% calories less than you'd expect at a given body weight. But if you go out two standard deviations from that to cover kind of like 95% of people, that means some unlucky folks out there after they've dieted are going to be burning about two-thirds of the calories you'd expect them to. So the math doesn't always add up on an individual basis. So you have to look at it as a more of a dynamic thing and adjust the calories as needed to keep at a consistent level of weight loss. So I like to focus more on initially setting up your calories based on that kind of loose guideline, the 3,500 calorie rule, if you will, yep. and then making adjustments over time. And I think a, a decent rule of thumb for someone who's not overweight is you want to lose about 0.5 to 1% of your body weight per week. And if you're not seeing that, that's when you can make kind of those 100, 150 calorie shifts uh, downward when you're uh, you know a little below. Or likewise, if you're above that target, you can add more calories back in because losing too quickly is a pretty uh, good predictor of uh, unnecessary lean body mass losses. Yeah, I was going to ask, obviously, I mean, in the trainers working with general population, especially, you know, people want to see this dramatic and quick um, transformation in terms of body composition. So when we see some of these, you know, dramatic caloric deficits, what's the potential pitfalls for people in terms of trying to lose weight? That's a great question, you know, and, and this is an interesting one because there's some research showing that when you have an overweight individual who's significantly overweight, probably obese, um, faster weight loss initially does predict success long term. But that's not the case when you're dealing with someone who's just slightly overweight or an athlete trying to lose weight. 
or someone who's just trying to maintain a leaner physique, you know, uh, and, and if you think about it, that makes sense. You know, when you have Everest to climb, uh, being able to make some quick progress makes the rest of it feel doable. Uh, and taking these small steps when you're looking up and going, man, that's a tall mountain can be quite discouraging. Um, so certainly there, there, there's a time and a place for faster weight loss, but when I, when I'm talking faster weight loss, I don't, I don't mean biggest loser stuff, you know, and, sure. uh, you know, as a personal trainer, one of the most frustrating things is when you have someone come in and you give them, you set some realistic expectations and they're so far from, from what the person is expecting as to be discouraging. Um, you know, when someone watches, you know, these contestants on Biggest Loser just because I'm picking on them right now, losing, you know, 10 to 20 pounds a week to start and you tell them, hey, we can go go at a good clip and lose two to three pounds per week at the start. You know, that, that's, that's really fast if you think about it. I mean, you're losing more than 10 pounds a month at that speed. Absolutely. And, and you know, and, and that probably should slow down over time. Uh, but when they're expecting that per week, uh, I think that can be discouraging. So I, I think it's really important to, to set realistic expectations to know uh, the, the, the probable uh, issues of with trying to lose that fast. You know, if you are indeed losing as fast as you possibly can, it's just simply not sustainable. Uh, and... If you look at the hard facts, which are pretty discouraging, um, almost everybody can lose weight. Uh, the problem is, is they gain it back. You know, within within one to two years, we're looking at like a ninety percent recidivism, basically, of going back to or above the starting body weight uh, that, that people lost. And I think a large part of this is that the the fitness industry pushes um, quick fixes, and it doesn't do a good job of promoting lifestyle change. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's difficult to, to really kind of conceptualize early on that, hold on my entire life. I now plan to be eating healthy and exercising. Uh, it's much more easy just for the human brain to focus on the next 12 weeks. And if you're going to only focus on 12 weeks, well, you better damn make, make sure you make a difference. But the problem is, is that there's no game plan after those 12 weeks, you tend to just slide backwards and you combine that with adaptive thermogenesis and increases in hunger from being restricted. And sometimes you see people end up worse off than when they started. Yeah, it's definitely, especially in the general population with the environment being laden with so many hyperpalatable foods too. Once that hunger kicks up, it's pretty difficult to, uh, to offset that. Now, if we're talking bodybuilders or figure competitors and we're, you know, how do they game plan things when they're so many months out of a competition? Is there a general rule of thumb in terms of, you know, the amount of months and again, the, the, the weight loss per week? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, bodybuilding is, is an interesting thing because the, the standards for competition have changed over time. You know, if you were to look back even a couple decades, the standard length diet would be like about 12 weeks. Um, and then a long diet would be 16 weeks. And you still see that sometimes in the drug using side of the sport. But among the, uh, the tested side of the sport, when you're dealing with uh, drug free lifters uh, and competitors, that is typically a recipe for, for not getting lean enough, or if you do get lean enough, going through hell to get there. Uh, and gotcha. typically not, not showing up on stage looking full with all the muscle mass you started with. Um, you know, so so it's, it's, it's important to realize that the difference between bodybuilding in the 1980s was that no one even really knew that glutes were striated, you know, in, in male bodybuilding. And nowadays, the standard for conditioning is so high that, that you really have to have the complete absence of visible body fat to do well. Um, that means you need to have striations in your glutes, veins in, in, in your abs and in, in your inner thigh, complete separation everywhere. And, and what that means is that when you look at someone, 
your standard fitness model on, on the cover of a magazine. Uh, that if they're a male, they're probably 10 to 15 pounds over stage weight, is, which is surprising given how good they look. Sure. Uh, and that was a, and that was about what you would need, the kind of shape you'd need to get in to compete in, say, the 70s or 80s. So there's uh, just more fat to lose uh, to be competitive, and that means you need to take longer to do it. And as you get leaner and leaner, losing fat becomes harder and harder. Because if you think about it, you know, when you're, uh, let's say you competed 170 pounds and you start your diet at, uh, you know, 200 pounds, you've got 30 pounds to lose. But those one pound of those 30 pounds is a small percentage when you weigh 200. But when you're 175, losing one pound is a fifth of the body fat you need to lose. So sure. expecting to be able to do it in the same amount of time and, and expecting that to have the same effects on your body because fat is not inert tissue. You know, it, it produces uh, hormones and it has a large impact on things like satiety, uh, things like hormonal production in your body, um, this, the nervous system, all, all kinds of stuff. So uh, the, the way you feel at the end of a diet, uh, even when you do things right, uh, for a bodybuilder is, is, is pretty miserable at times. So game planning is very important. So I think the, the average length of a diet for uh, a male competitive bodybuilder these days, is about six months. And for women, it tends to be more like seven. Um, if they're depending on the division they compete in, not all of them require you to get as lean, but for getting maximally lean, say if you're a female bodybuilder, uh, or a male bodybuilder, we're looking at six or seven months or so. Um, and that means, okay, well then there's going to be a recovery period because this is pretty rough on the body and that typically takes about, you know, two to three months before everything is, you, you start to feel human again. And then if you think about it, that, that leaves you with, you know, four months before the next season starts before you have to diet again. So you, you see a trend these days of people competing every other year or taking long off seasons and really the folks who, uh, should be competing every year or who, who can get away with it. Uh, and who still do well are, are the pros who have, you know, really kind of built built their physique for the most part. And it's more about retaining a title um, and, you know, only being able to make small improvements anyway. Uh, it's not the end of the world if, if they don't have much of an off-season. And they've also refined their diets. So they can be more efficient, effective, and, and they're good at getting uh, recovered quickly. So I think there's a, a big shift that's, that's occurred, uh, especially in the, the natural side of the sport in the last uh, 10, 15 years as the requirements for, for success have, have, have become more extreme. Yeah, it's really interesting, especially obviously the, the stress involved in, in terms of, of cutting and, and, and training at that level. And if, you know, shifting gears here to a different macro in terms of carbohydrates, um, obviously a, a strategy that can be employed is reducing carbohydrates sometimes significantly, but what are some of the consequences of, of insufficient carb intake if, if athletes or bodybuilders are still training uh, you know, in, intensely and trying to grow? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, carbohydrate is, um, is important to some degree for bodybuilders. I, I would say it's not as important as you as for an athlete with a much higher energy expenditure. You know, if you are a soccer player or if you're a marathon runner, uh, the kind of carbohydrate intake and also the, the, the subsequent energy intake from taking in a high level of carbohydrate is going to be a lot higher uh, and should be a lot higher if you really want to maximize performance based on what we know. Now, for a bodybuilder, sure, they are anaerobic athletes. You know, you're probably training anywhere in the, you know, 4 to 20 rep range for, for most of the time. And some of that will certainly deplete glycogen, uh, glycogen being the, the, you know, the stored form of, of, of carbohydrate in humans. Um, and, you know, depending on how much volume you're doing, you know, uh, a weight training session 
can deplete, say, you know, maybe 10 to 30% of the local muscle glycogen. Um, and that, that is enough to induce fatigue. Uh, now, you might think, oh, that, that's a big deal. But the thing is, is you're also not typically training the same muscle group again, you know, within the same day. You know, if, if you have a normal day of eating, you wake up, uh, you have breakfast the next day, and then you go train again, that, that local muscle glycogen is probably completely, if not all the way, replenished if you're on a normal diet. Uh, now, when you're dieting, that, that's a different scenario, you know, because you have a obligatory reduction of calories, that means you're going to have to find somewhere for it to cut from. And carbohydrates is, is often one of, but not the only culprit. Typically, it's, you know, both fat and carbohydrates that have to come down at some point in a diet. Yep. Um, and so, so then, then you're dealing with, okay, I'm, I'm, I am depleting glycogen in the training, and I am uh, restricting carbohydrate to some degree. So maybe I am running into some issues with glycogen. Um, even though I'm only training, let's say, each muscle group two to three times per week, I'm kind of in this chronically depleted state. And especially when it comes to the lower body, I'm also doing cardio, typically, at some point. Uh, so that, that's why it's important to modulate the intensity of cardio, to, to kind of think about how it fits in with the rest of your training. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of doing um, a lot of like high-intensity cardio for bodybuilders uh, because of the potential interference effect on training, especially during dieting. So uh, I think there's a time and place for some of it, but it needs to be carefully planned. Um, and for this reason, you want to try to, for the most part, diet on as many carbohydrates as you can with a big emphasis on you. Because some <laughs> people... personalized approach becomes key, right? Exactly. You know, I've, I've had clients who that means, you know, they're, they're getting down to under 100 grams. I've had clients who are on their low days above 300 grams. And that's not just due to... Uh, to body mass or activity levels. There are definitely individual differences. Um, you know, we've got a, a fair amount of research now that shows that uh, insulin resistance or sensitivity uh, can predict whether or not you would be more successful on a lower or higher carb diet um, and co-committantly a, a lower or higher fat intake, vice versa kind of thing. Now, not to say that I think many bodybuilders are insulin resistant. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. You know, they're, they're typically healthy, lean, health conscious people who are quite active. Um, but there's a lot of things that goes into that beyond just those factors. You know, your, your age, uh, your genetic history, uh, your ethnicity, even these are all things that can affect the way you metabolize carbohydrates. So, um, we can't really predict very well, uh, whether or not you would respond better to one or the other, but there's always trial and error. And, uh, you know, typically that means you're going to be somewhere in the range of, you know, a gram per pound up to maybe two or three grams per pound, depending on the individual. Uh, in, in the, in say the off season and then maybe shift that down a little bit, uh, another half a, half a gram per pound or so, or, or, or a full gram per pound when you're dieting, um, with some, some reduction in fat as well, but you can only go so low for each one of the macronutrients. You, you probably don't want to be cutting protein. Um, and you don't want to cut carbs so low that you end up sacrificing your training quality and your muscle fullness. Um, and you also don't want to cut your fat too low because then you start to have issues with, fat-soluble vitamins. You can have issues with uh, hormone production. You can have issues uh, with with just mouthfeel and satiety and not feeling uh, and having adherence problems with, with low-fat diets. But um, as long as it's a temporary period, you can get away with a drastic cut in any one of those areas. So it's important to kind of periodize your diet. I use intermittent diet breaks as, as a way to get around this uh, high days and low days so that, you know, we might go five, five low days in a row, then and two high days to replenish glycogen and, and just replenish sanity uh, before diving in again. <laughs> and, sure. and these seem to be pretty important for, 
for getting through a diet that has to last as long as it does. And in terms of the kind of eyeballing that, that carb intake per individual, are there some general, like, do you tie that into some performance metrics in terms of what they're able to do in the gym? Is it all based on, on, on physique and look? Are there some rough parameters that people can use to gauge that, uh, that measure? Man, it would be nice, but there's so many interacting value variables there that I, I typically start with um, a general kind of range and then go with personal preference. And then if I get to work with someone over a long period, uh, we can try uh, different setups. Well, one thing I like to do is, is keep protein fixed and then try a diet that is 20% fat and then try a diet that is 40% fat. And this I typically like to do in the off season. So you can kind of disconnect it from um, some of the issues of hunger. Because a lot of the times what you what you crave in the middle of a diet isn't necessarily indicative of, of what is best for you. It's There's so many factors that go into um, you know hunger and appetite and satiety and things like that that are uh, outside of, of what might determine your best performance. Absolutely. It's still important. It's still important because bodybuilders are on robots as much as they like to believe. Like you have to think about, you know, adherence here. But um, but like in the off season, if, if we can take a two-month stint of, of, you know, increasing carbs and dropping fat to 20% and then a two-month stint of increasing uh, fats to 40% and dropping carbs and then seeing subjectively how we feel, how performance is and just kind of looking at it with – uh, that bird's eye view over the over the two months, uh, even getting some you know like subjective rating scales going for, for like say sleep, mood, uh, things like that. Uh, yeah. Then then we can get a good idea if there's if there's much of a difference. And in my experience, most people um, don't really have a significant difference there if they're young uh, bodybuilders who are in the sport. And that may change over time, and it's not everybody. But when it does make a difference, it can make a significant difference. So it's definitely worth experimenting with uh, to see where you fall. That's terrific. Great point. And um, if we could actually just circle back, you mentioned that obviously the fats and, and the connection between dietary fat and some anabolic hormones. You know, how does lowering fat intake, if someone were to go that road or, to, you know, perhaps it's in the lead up to competition, how does that impact uh, things like testosterone levels potentially? Yeah, that, there's been there's <clears> been some lines of research looking at that. And uh, you certainly can see uh, if your fat intake is too low or if other things are too low. Uh, there, there's actually a lot of complex variables that go into testosterone production. Um, but the thing, the most impactful thing on, on your hormone levels is the deficit itself and dieting. And, uh, I, I don't want anyone to think that, Oh, okay, if I can just maintain, you know, uh, one gram per kilo of, of fat intake or, or higher throughout my whole diet, that my testosterone is going to be intact. It most definitely will not um, I've seen there's there's a handful of case studies now that have been published on bodybuilders, natural bodybuilders going through a, a whole prep, and for the most part, whenever they measure hormones, they see reductions uh, in testosterone pretty significantly, regardless of the macronutrient breakdown. So I think it's more of an issue of just just you just don't want to go too low, not to think like oh if I just keep my fat high it'll preserve everything. It it, it won't. You know a lot of this is a consequence of, of starvation and a deficit. With that said, I think. Um, based on the, the limited data we have, you probably don't want to go below, say, like 0.5 grams per kg as a fat intake, and that's that's still pretty low. And I try, I would like to, not to get there in the first place. Um, but in the end, when you're dieting for a show, you're going to have to rob Peter to pay Paul. There's really no way around it. Uh, sure. In most cases, one of your macronutrients or the amount of cardio you're doing or both is going to have to be in a position where you don't want it to be, uh, or you'd be walking around lean all the time, right? So. So it's it's uh, it's a matter of of what's the least, what's the lesser of two evils, 
And I often do this less on, you know, hypothetical guesses about what it's going to do to someone's hormone levels and more so based on what do they think they can handle and uh, how does it fit with their lives? What's, where's their stress levels, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, great, great advice. And uh, yeah, I was really surprised to see that the testosterone levels can obviously be um, lower for, for many months after competition as well, which kind of reflects the, you know, how stressful the process is. And is, is there any play here between saturated fats and unsaturated fats? Or is, is again, it was it come down to more just the total caloric intake? Uh, there is, there is some play there. I mean, uh, but it's, 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 it's more like if you are deficient in saturated fats, there's a problem, not like there's a dose response with it. Um, and people also seem to get a little confused between the effect of cholesterol and saturated fat. They kind of talk about them as though they are the same. Um, and it's not very difficult to maintain your cholesterol intake. That's like, you know, having, have an egg per day and you're good. Um, so I would say that it, it, yes and no, I, there isn't a dose response with saturated fat, but if you are really, really low in it, uh, there is some evidence that that might result in a, a lower testosterone level. But I think that is not that hard to to maintain, um, even during a diet, if you just have a decent amount of food variety and you keep in uh, some sources. Oh, good stuff. Good to hear. And what about um, another area that's sort of obviously become more, much more popular in the last few years? This is you know, on the ketogenic side of things in terms of bodybuilding with ketogenic diets. You know, is that you know an application that's potentially has some benefit in terms of health implications with, with blood sugar control? Maybe as athletes get older, is it um, simply just a, a different way to um, achieve the, you know, the same end goals? You know, for the, for the most part, the, the hype around ketogenic diets and, and the research on them is, they are quite far from one another. <laughs> Pretty dramatic, you know? right? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the conversations about them, even in, among rel relatively educated circles, has become polarized too, um, which, which is concerning to me because I, I would say if you just look at the research and you get off social media for a week, you can basically see that um, the ketogenic diet and a low-fat, high-carb diet that's you know calorie-controlled produce very similar levels of weight loss. Uh, when you look at meta-analytic data, maybe one leans this way, one leans the other way, but you've got nearly, I think, double-digit meta-analyses at this stage, and, and none of them show a distinct advantage of one over the other. Um, there are some interesting things about the ketogenic diet that it seems to result in uh, a reduction in caloric intake when, when, when doing abdominal feeding initially, uh, meaning that as you are shifting over to a higher-protein, higher-fat diet and dropping out your carbohydrates, you're going to kind of subconsciously without really notice it, like start dieting without trying to. Um, that's, we've seen that in our lab. Uh, but this effect goes away and starts to climb back up. Uh, so this combination of, you know, having about two to four weeks of just being more satiated than normal and therefore eating less calories uh, and also losing a fair bit of water and glycogen uh, results in some pretty quick weight loss, then stays there. So that, that's cool. You know, you can think about applications for that. Um, but at the same time, you know, being too low in carbohydrates can also impact performance. So there's, there's, a, there's a potential trade-off. So there's, there's interest in strategies around how, how can I, you know, avoid that, that trade-off. And uh, I think, like we talked about earlier with personalized nutrition, uh, not everyone is going to do well on, on a restricted carbohydrate diet. And some people will do very poorly on it uh, and others will thrive on it. So I think, um, I think that's, that's the main focus and the main takeaway is that the, probably the reason why these meta the meta-analytic data shows more or less a wash 
doesn't mean that as an individual, you doing one or the other, it won't make any difference. It just means that there's enough individuals who do well on one and well on the other that it averages out at a population level to not make a difference. So it's still worth uh, experimenting individually. That said, I don't see the need to go to the point where you're actually ketogenic, which, you know, depending on the definition might be less than 25, 50 or 100 grams of carbohydrate per day. Uh, when many of the theoretical benefits and, and, and things that you see occurring that are positive due to a ketogenic diet can be achieved on a lower carb diet that's not yet ketogenic, you know, say like one gram per kg uh, of sure. carbohydrate. Um, I think there's probably too much mystique around being in a state of nutritional ketosis, you know, uh, the, the line in the sand of, you know, uh, seeing you know, your, your, your ketone levels at 0.5 is, is, is just that line in the sand. There's no, uh, you know, like empirical reason why that was chosen as the point where we say, yep, that's when you're in nutritional ketosis. You know, the reality is, is you're going to be, you know, 0.2, 0.3 just after an overnight fast. You know, anytime you're, you're fasted or haven't eaten for a while, um, or been restricted for carbohydrates for a while, ketones are, are a normal substrate for energy that we use. You know, we have ketogenic amino acids, and when we're restricting carbohydrates, we will create more ketones. It is something that we use regularly in the body. And it, it achieving a point that is this 0.5 cutoff is, is not necessarily magic, in my opinion. And um, I think the, the over-focus on ketones has led to some pretty wacky things, like uh, reducing protein intake on a ketogenic diet uh, to, to try to, you know, not have, you know, to make sure that your nutritional ketones are the highest. And I, I think that's kind of missing the forest for the trees. Like any, any potential benefit here is largely due to, uh, you know, satiety. And, and, and you wouldn't want to try to remove that by dropping in the most satiating macronutrient. And also uh, the mo what's arguably going to be protecting against lean body mass losses. Uh, and there's a fair amount of research showing that a large portion of the benefits uh, of going on a, uh, a low-carb, high-fat diet is that you typically increase protein as well you know, protein and fat rise. And there's a good line of research showing that a lot of the weight proposed weight loss benefits shown in some of the earlier research on um, high fat, low carb diets is actually not due to the low carb component, but rather due to the high protein component. And when you match for protein, uh, these differences get washed out. And that's when you see uh, this kind of, you know, either or kind of preference, it doesn't really matter at the population level. So I think I think especially for athletes, you just need to be careful about probably erring on the side of seeing as many carbs as you can eat, uh, and but still taking the time to experiment with lower intakes and not thinking that the lower the better. Uh, I, I don't think we have any, any data to support that. Um, and we have a ton of, of athletes or, or bodybuilders, I should say, getting on stage absolutely peeled uh, who are on moderate and high carbohydrate intakes while still being calorie restricted. So I think... It's time to let go of the, the pure hypothesis that, you know, insulin drives fat storage and understand it's more complex than that and that insulin doesn't necessarily predict, uh, the, it's not the only predictor of whether or not you're going to be losing body fat. Yeah, I mean, great advice and especially in terms of the biomarkers, all of a sudden, you know, clients or sometimes even athletes start chasing these biomarkers instead of some real hard performance metrics of what they're actually trying to achieve. So. Sounds like that individualized Absolutely. approach is key, and, and yeah, make, maximizing the benefits while mitigating all these risks is, is crucial. And um, if we kind of shift gears and onto the supplement side of things, like in terms of supplementation for bodybuilding, physique-oriented trainees, you know, what are sort of the ones in terms of the evidence base that are really showing some benefit um, for, for bodybuilders? 
That's a great question. And you know, the, um, the supplement industry has always been part and parcel with the bodybuilding industry. And, and so much of the, the funding to athletes and coaches and so much of the income and, and support for shows and support for federations is, is tied into the supplement industry. So it's no surprise that the importance of supplements are very much overblown in the bodybuilding community. I remember when I started out as an athlete, um, there was basically like three pillars that I thought, you know, supplements, training and nutrition. And, and All they're equal, almost right. <laughs> right. Exactly. They're almost seen as equal. And, and, you know, maybe on, on the, uh, the untested side of the sport where, where drug use at a certain level is obligatory to be successful. Uh, you, you could make that argument if supplements were replaced with, you know, drugs, but for the natural bodybuilder or for someone who isn't interested in going that route, um, supplements make up a very, very small piece of the puzzle. Uh, and even the, the most tried and true time tested supplements that do have an impact on variables that are relevant to bodybuilders like say creatine aren't going to make such a difference that you always even notice it. Um, and, and, and that, but they'd still do something. It's just below the threshold to which we can perceive it uh, consistently. Um, some people take creatine and don't notice it, you know, uh, but we know that very, very consistently in the literature, you know, creatine monohydrate seems to improve not only uh, muscular performance, but also lean body mass. Um, but there's others too, you know, the, uh, it hasn't changed a lot over the years, but some emerge and then some, you know, fall under scrutiny and, and kind of collapse as, as the good research is done. But for the most part, uh, we know that creatine and caffeine are, are, are probably the most consistent, uh, potential supplements to aid in performance. Um, you know, caffeine has a number of beneficial effects that are useful to bodybuilders. It suppresses tiredness, which can be very helpful when you're lethargic from dieting, um, and have to go train. And at higher dosages, it can improve performance. Uh, typically, this is more consistent in muscular endurance tests, but it also does seem to improve strength at higher doses, just less consistently. And more often, it seems to be in the lower body versus the upper body, uh, which might be because it, it – I, th I think this is because it's also an analgesic to some degree. And training legs is just hard. <laughs> it hurts. hurts, right? Yeah, you know. And um, any recommendations around obviously when you're pushing that higher end of caffeine and you know athletes will feel good in the in the very short term at uh, you know kind of starting to tread that line at that upper end of intakes of adverse symptoms is there uh, strategies you have or do you find your athletes perform fine with you know that kind of five to six milligrams per kg? Man, it's crazy because the six milligrams per kg, five to six milligrams per kg is what is consistently the most consistent performance enhancer in the research. But the, the side effects of that and how you feel and the jitteriness and uh, if you take that even after noon sometimes, uh, that, that can really have a profound negative effect on sleep. Uh, and so much of the, the caffeine research is short term. It's, you know, what happened in this crossover study. Exactly. Uh, we had this, you know, it, it doesn't tell you. And how was their sleep, you know, for the last of the three months when they kept doing this? Um, so I, I think you have to be careful. And um, there's a ton of research now just on showing that we have – uh, different levels of responders to caffeine. There's, there's a. We should probably be moving more towards kind of like individual response to caffeine. And so I, I would say for anyone, you want to start with the lowest effective dose where you can uh, that that you can you tolerate easily and still feel a boost in your training. Um, so you know, starting around like that three milligrams per kg and seeing what you get out of that uh, an hour prior to, to maybe your only only your hard training sessions, so you can avoid some of the habituation to it. Uh, is, is not a bad idea. And then only going higher if, if there's not a benefit. Because sometimes I think the, uh, the, the, the potential negatives can, can offset any potential benefit. So what I typically recommend is, um, you know, 
start around three milligrams per kg an hour before your, your hardest training sessions. So maybe no more than say two or three times per week. So I mean, you've got four days where you're not taking pre-workout caffeine. Uh, you can still have it in your daily life, you know, uh, a cup of coffee here and there, so that's no problem. Uh, and then as a general rule, try not to go above in any given day, six milligrams per kg. Uh, and then of course, adjust based on individual results. Um, and I would probably try to do your training sessions, say before two or 3 PM on days you're going to take caffeine. Yeah. Great advice. And I mean, as your lifters get more elite, is it, you know, do you have a preference more to supplemental form so you can kind of keep tabs on the dose versus like just a cup of coffee or is it, uh, you know, is it all yeah, kind of I, a wash or. I typically like just like actual caffeine tablets or, or a pre-workout because um, trying to drink enough coffee to get to that supplemental level before you train. <laughs> good. Now you got to go to the bathroom. Yeah, you know, everything off, right? exactly. There can be some practical concerns there. Um, but, sure. you know, I think it's up to the individual. Um, you know, and coffee does have other things in it besides caffeine. It's um, there is there's some epidemiological data which shows coffee is actually um, relatively healthy as far as what we know at this stage. But there's, there's a lot to that. You know, epidemiological data is not cause and effect. You know, uh, that, that could be that people who drink a lot of coffee also engage socially more often. You know, Dan John, I heard mention that. He was like, well, you think about it, you know, both wine and coffee tend to be shown to extend life and improve quality of life. Is that just because those are social drinks? You know, do they have more friends? Because that, that could be a confounding factor. Absolutely. Uh, or it could be, you know, the various antioxidants that are in wine and coffee and it has not much to do with the caffeine itself. It's, it's tough to know. But, um, but yeah, for purely the performance side of it, I think it's, it's probably easier to know how much you're taking when you're taking caffeine pills or pre-formulated supplements uh, because coffee can vary quite wildly depending on how the uh, how it's produced. Um, yep. But yeah, caffeine and, and creatine are your big performance supplements. There's there's a couple others that kind of make the list, but not always. And that's beta alanine and citrulline malate. Now, um, those are both basically what I would classify as like muscular endurance eating supplements. You know, uh, beta alanine seems to have a beneficial effect for efforts lasting probably a little bit longer than 30 seconds and up to kind of like a few minutes. Um, so that doesn't always encompass what bodybuilders are doing. Uh, granted, there's many ways to skin a cat in bodybuilding. You can do a lot of high rep training or a high rep training block. You know, if you're training for the most part, 15 reps and higher, maybe you would want to take beta alanine. If you tend to be in the, the more traditional six to 12 range all the time, you probably won't see a benefit. Um, and then citrulline malate is kind of similar. It's been shown as basically a supplement that can enhance your capacity to do volume. Uh, you know, citrulline and malate both ind individually can have a an effect on on your ability to, to produce work. Um, citrulline being a blood flow enhancer uh, and potentially uh, buffering ammonia. And then uh, malate being a Krebs cycle intermediate. You know, their combined intake has, for the most part, in about five out of seven studies on weightlifting shown to to have a beneficial effect, um, but not consistent. So I don't think it's going to have a huge impact, um, but it, it could help you perform a little more volume. Like let's say you're to take a fixed load and try to do uh, three sets of as many reps as you can. Um, more often than not in the research, it shows that those taking, you know, eight grams citrulline malate about an hour prior are able to get more total reps across those sets than the individual not. Um, so those are all the basically the performance supplements that have been shown to be consistently useful. Uh, the other ones are more about uh, general health and ensuring that everything's in place, which become increasingly important when you're dieting. Things like 
uh, vitamin D, um, things like fish oil, uh, things like a general all-purpose multivitamin that's that's not overdosed like your typical <laughs> bodybuilding <laughs> multivitamins. Yeah, yeah. And and how about the um, two that are obviously really common that you know in the literature we don't see as much actual evidence for, but that seem to just be, you know, again for for recreational trainees and whatnot, arginines or glutamines seem to be common ones that are in gym bags. What, what does the research really show in terms of where we're at with those? Yeah, arginine has is, is, is not been shown to be that effective at uh, enhancing blood flow. And it's, I, to my knowledge, as a single supplement, it's never been shown to actually increase performance or lean body mass, um, despite the fact uh, that it is, uh, well, the thing is, is even when arginine does enhance blood flow, then we have to guess, okay, is that enhancement in blood flow enough to actually make any kind of clinical meaningful outcome in, in lean body mass performance? And blood flow is not a powerful thing. As much as we all love to, to listen to Arnold talk about the pump, uh, <laughs> it, it plays some role in nutrient delivery. It plays some role in creating you know, intercellular swelling, which might enhance hypertrophy. But um, just a small increase in blood flow, that, that's really not going to do much. You know? um, so I think uh, you know, citrulline is actually a better driver of, of uh, enhancement of blood flow than, than arginine is. Um, so if, if someone is, is looking for that, I think citrulline malate would probably be a, a better choice. And it, it at least shows consistent, semi-consistent results in terms of performance or in terms of performance uh, outcomes that, that should be beneficial for a bodybuilder. So I think arginine probably uh, does, doesn't make the list. I, I think it's been pretty consistently shown to not be that effective. And then glutamine, you know, there's been a ton of research where they're actually giving it intravenously to burn victims, and it's it's great for healing. Um, but that it's been some extrapolations into then taking it orally, and the issue is that something like 80% of glutamine is taken up in, in the gut, and it never even makes it to your muscles to really assist with uh, muscle repair, which which it could theoretically do. Um, and like arginine, there's been no research to show. Uh, any kind of beneficial effects for recovery um, from from training or beneficial effects on performance or lean body mass accrual from taking glutamine. Um, there is some data showing improvements in gut health, but I think that's something that I don't think that's like a requirement. Like I think we become a little over-focused on the gut these days with kind of the, uh, in, in some communities in the, in, in, in the nutritional world, and it's like, well, if you're having gut problems, maybe you could consider that. But the first thing I would do is go see your general practitioner yeah, you know, before sure. you just, you know, because you could have a serious issue that you're just <laughs> trying to be like, oh, let's get some glutamine, you know, like, well, what if you have an ulcer? You know, it's not going <laughs> to. Yeah, glutamine's not so, going to help. And another one is right. with infections and immunity. Glutamine seems to be one that people go to that in there, again, in the research, there's just very, uh, you know, like you mentioned, unless you're actually like a burn victim or in real uh, trouble, it's, it's just, there's not a lot of good evidence that it's going to help you on the immune side either. Yeah, unless you're injecting it, you know. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but people aren't doing that, you know. So uh, yeah, I, I would agree. Glutamine and arginine, and also branched chain amino acids, are probably the ones that are commonly taken without much evidence basis. Gotcha. Now, if we shift gears here to talk peak week before a competition, um, you mentioned the pump. Things like dehydration. How does that impact um, guys and gals before they go on stage, and uh, how does that potentially hinder their uh, ability to to perform on competition day? For sure, and and this is one where you we, we can't rely too much on research because there's been a total of yeah. one one study ever on carbohydrate loading for actual changes in muscle uh, muscle circumference. Um, but so peak week, you have to think about it more from a 
physiological basis and, and what is happening. You know, we do know that um, someone dehydrated has a, a massive loss of water from their muscle tissue. Um, so this, and considering how much water there is in muscle, that means you're, you, you, you would think you'd have the appearance of being smaller. And that certainly matches up with what I've seen. When people drastically cut water, they look smaller. Um, now, again, I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who's coached hundreds of natural bodybuilders. I haven't worked with a lot of guys on, on gear or gals. Uh, and I know that practice is a lot more common on the drug side of the sport. And if you think about it, you know, anabolic steroids can, can help maintain muscle fullness through a few mechanisms. And then if they're androgenic in nature, that can, just like you know, a woman might retain more water on her period, uh, that can result in, in, in someone retaining more water while they're on certain drugs. So perhaps uh, that trade-off is worth it when, when you are on specific drugs and cutting water does make you look leaner without sacrificing muscle fullness. I, I'm not confident in that claim, but I at least can't discount it. Um, but for the most part, I don't think there is any reason to cut water in someone who's drug-free, and I've never consistently seen it make uh, a positive benefit, uh, beneficial difference. And for the most part, I think it makes sense to maintain a relatively normal water intake. Um, some things that, that happen when you when you dehydrate a lot or, or you drink a lot of water, it changes other things, like electrolyte balance, because your body's trying to maintain a certain level of, uh, of body water to, to stay alive. Um, so. Other things that, that people end up manipulating is their electrolytes, like either sodium or potassium. And that's largely based on a misunderstanding of the sodium-potassium pump. Um, the idea that uh, you can increase intracellular fullness by increasing potassium and cutting sodium to decrease extracellular, that's not untrue from a pure chemical kind of perspective. But the problem is that intramuscular is not the same thing as intracellular. Uh, and subcutaneous is not the same thing as extracellular. In fact, the vascular system is extracellular, and that's where you want a lot of your body water going to For actually sure. be pumped into your muscle while you're doing your pump up to deliver nutrients, etc. And um, I, I've seen over and over and over again people who cut sodium, load potassium, and then cut water, they're backstage, and they can't catch a pump to save their life, even though they've loaded a ton of carbohydrate. Uh, and another reason that might be is that um, – the, 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 the glucose transporter in the gut is, so, is a sodium-dependent channel. So that means if you are cutting sodium and loading carbohydrate, you might be inhibiting your ability to actually get that glucose into your bloodstream, into your muscles for glycogen. Uh, so I, I can see a number of reasons why this kind of old-school strategy of loading potassium, cutting sodium, and drawing, cutting back on water is problematic. Uh, and typically what I do is... If anything, we increase the sodium intake a little bit, uh, maintain uh, water levels, and then do a, uh, a not crazy, but a, a moderate you know, carb load to try to make sure we can get undepleted from all the weeks of dieting. And this typically results, of course, you have to individualize it and you have to babysit it. You have to watch it over multiple days. This can typically result in, in a more fuller, leaner look on stage. That's terrific, and and the build up to that is obviously kind of a slower, steadier build up versus the, you know, what you see in the movies with a two or three week uh, nose dive to the finish line. Yeah, I, it's it's always it's always odd to me when people go like peak week is horrendous, and I know immediately what what they're talking about. They're doing depletion workouts. They're cutting carbs drastically early, uh, and they're 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 loading sodium, and then they're going to cut sodium back, and they're going to. 
um, load a bunch of carbohydrate while restricting water, load potassium, uh, and all of that at the same time feels like death, uh, no doubt about it. And I think just from a very pragmatic perspective, if you looked great two, three weeks out, and you should, <laughs> then why would you change absolutely everything? I think uh, it's important to look at if you're having high days or refeeds in your strategy, look at when relative to your high calorie, typically high carbohydrate days, did you look your best? Was it the same day? Uh, was it uh, two days afterwards? Maybe you, you tended to, to get a little softer looking after you load a, lar a large amount of carbohydrates. And then try to replicate that when you go into your peak week. And everything else can stay roughly the same. You know, you don't want to be sore on stage, so maybe you cut back on some of your more eccentric dominant movements and, you know, make sure you don't train on, say, like Friday. Um, yeah, but, but some people cut out training completely and then do all that stuff I talked about as well, or at least they cut out leg training completely. Um, and to me, if that is helpful, it probably is just indicative that you're creating way too much damage in your leg training normally. Uh, and and, and uh, that's probably more of a systemic issue if you're tra not training appropriately for bodybuilding. So there's there's so many kind of wrapped in assumptions and and mythological lore kind of approaches that are, that are probably not beneficial. And I see very inconsistently in, in traditional bodybuilding circles do athletes get on stage looking well peaked. Uh, and I think this is one of those things where the kind of the emperor has no clothes and people are just still doing it the same way um, just because it's done that way. And, and I don't think uh, that that is still not caught up with even just kind of trial and error. You know, I, I don't expect bodybuilders to be too in tuned into science because there's very little science that actually serves them, you know, and what, what, what little there is, is, is not always applicable. And I do my best to kind of educate and share that information and provide useful, uh, useful recommendations. But certainly around peak week, there's nothing. But even then, I just don't think that bodybuilders are doing a good job in traditional circles of actually just looking at, I tried this and X happened. Most of the time, it's like, I tried the same thing that I do every time, and it still didn't work, but I'm going to keep doing it because everyone says I should do that. And I think it's about time that needs to die away. I mean, yeah, great insights and just being a bit more intuitive and, yeah, really listening to the body and, you know, f fantastic evidence-based uh, insights here as well from from you eric i want to definitely respect your time here so last last couple questions for you here um on the personal side of things you're obviously a really busy guy can you share with listeners a little bit about how you start your day you know you have a routine are you a coffee person you're training in the morning how does that look great question yeah i <laughs> i have uh, a lot of things going on and and so partitioning my time is very is very important to make sure i get it all done um I typically have a pretty light breakfast. I just uh, am never hungry in the morning, so I'll, I'll wake up and I'll have uh, like a, a whey protein bar, um, and then I will start working on some of my lower stress kind of work. Which for me, even though this goes against many many recommendations, is I just start with emails um, and make sure that I'm just staying on top of communications with with everyone, and I'll do that for a couple hours, and then I will block off some time uh, prior to lunch to work. And then we'll typically have a lunch with my wife, unless she's in class. Uh, and then from there, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll work some more while the food's digesting, and then we go train. And then when I get back from training, that's typically hangout time. And uh, just, just quality time with my wife or, or seeing friends or doing things unrelated to work. Uh, and then on days I don't train, I get a lot more done. So that's, you know, depending on the week, two or three days a week uh, where I'm, I'm not, not training. Uh, and those those are days where I can really kind of go in and, and spend a good block of you know six hours in a row getting stuff done. So um, so yeah, I, I try to be pretty holistic about it. When I was doing 
Another thing I, I really recommend and I think about is that not only do you have to manage your time, you have to manage your energy. So some tasks require really no creative energy. Uh, they're, you know, filling out something in a spreadsheet, uh, doing, doing your taxes, th things that are, are basically just monotonous, number crunching, uh, busy work. Uh, and other things like writing a blog post or creating a YouTube video or writing a chapter in a book or writing a research review article, those take a lot of creative energy. And even if you have the time to do them, if you don't have the creative energy to do them, that's really inefficiently wasted. I think we've all spent, anyone who's tried to be a content producer has had those experiences where they've sat down and they've got four hours blocked out and they produce maybe two paragraphs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's Nothing a total more depressing. Slog. Yeah. And, and I, I've learned over the years that when that starts to happen, I stop immediately. I just pull, I'll pull the plug. I'm like, this is not going to happen. And I start working on things that don't require emotional energy. I'm like, hey, I, I've got to get a lot of this menial stuff done. Maybe I need to do some programming for clients. Like that certainly takes some creative energy, but I know what I'm doing. You know, that, that's something that's a lot more, uh, I don't have to pull something Automatic, out of the ether yeah. to be creative. Exactly. So during my PhD, I would format my thesis. I would get my references sorted on EndNote. You know, I would, I would write the methods section, which is really just, okay, what did I do? You know, not try to write the discussion. Um, and, uh, and I, I take that same tact now once I finish my PhD with classifying things as things that take time but don't take creative energy or emotional energy and things that take time and do take creative or emotional energy. And I think it's very important to strike when the iron's hot and not trying to force something when it's not there. Oh, fantastic, uh, fantastic tips there, Eric. And um, to wrap things up here, last question for you, um, maybe not an easy one, but what, what's the evolution of research and bodybuilding? Where, where are things going to be going in the next five or ten years? Uh, is there going to be more data coming out showing us the best way to do this? You know, where, where is that headed? I, I'm actually very optimistic about the future of research in bodybuilding. I think once it was shown that there was some interest in this, we've experienced a bit of a, a renaissance in, in, in bodybuilding research. You know, uh, i got to give some good credit to, to Lane Norton, who I think was probably the first person who really popularized you know, he did his PhD, he, um, he produced research, um, you know, certainly we've had, you know, PhD level kind of leaders and coaches in bodybuilding, like Joe Klinzewski comes to mind. Um, but Lane was the first one who was started to produce research and showed, hey, this is a career you can follow. You can go get, you know, a PhD from a respected uh, university and then just go do bodybuilding stuff with it, you know? And I think a lot of people have followed in those footsteps, I being one of them, you know, Peter Fitchin being another, um, and I can think of, of a lot of others who, like Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, uh, you know, Alan Aragon, James Krieger. There, there's a ton of people out there who are not only science communicators, but are also involved in primary research now, who are producing things. And that, and those people who are kind of walking in both worlds, like like the people I just mentioned and myself, have also shown some of the more pure researchers that hey, there's an interest here. You know, you can get uh, some of the most read articles on the journal of in certain journals. Uh, by, by looking into this area. So people like, you know, Stu Phillips and others have, have kind of taken up the call and been like, hey, there's, like, we can definitely, uh, you know, produce more, more stuff directly in this realm. And I think that's really cool. And I really appreciate all those people who are uh, producing research that's a little more relevant to our strange little niche sport. And I think the same thing is true of powerlifting as well. So it, it's been very cool to see. And uh, it could just be selection bias now that I'm doing monthly applications in strength sport, which is very much targeted, you know, at uh, strength and physique athletes that I'm looking at the research each month that comes out that's relevant. But it seems like there's a lot now, which is cool. So I I'm very hopeful. 
Awesome. That's awesome. Awesome stuff, Eric. Really appreciate it. And, you know, where can people keep up with all your phenomenal research and work and where can people stay connected with you on social media? Awesome. I'm, I'm so happy I can share that information. So I would check out 3dmusclejourney.com is kind of a one-stop shop that leads everywhere else. You can find links to monthly applications and strength sport there. If you want to stay up with our research review, you can find our YouTube channel, uh, which is a little more kind of um, basic, not not basic, but it's, it's not as nerdy. Let's put it that way. It's a little more practical application and a little more what do you do versus, oh, we analyze the methods. Uh, awesome. And then you can also find the links to the muscle and strength pyramids, which are very, very research based and a ton of references, but they are very much. And here's how you should set up you or your client's training. Uh, and then if you want to follow me on social media where I link to all this kind of stuff, check me out at Helms 3DMJ on in- Instagram. And then also I have an Eric, I have a Facebook, which you can just Google uh, Eric Helms on Facebook. And if you really want to get into it, uh, you can check out my research gate profile where anytime I can uh, release the full text. Any of my studies that I've done or been a part of, I will do so on there. Uh, so yeah, that that's pretty much me. Terrific. Well, we'll definitely include all those links in a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Eric, thanks again for coming on. Thanks again, everyone else for, for tuning in. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you as well on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. And of course, if you enjoy the show and are a regular listener, please subscribe and share with friends. Thanks again and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.